It should not immediately be held to be untrue, those things that disagree with the customs and zeitgeist of our own century. So goes the statement at the beginning of Historia Rerum Norvegicarum, literally, a history of Norwegian things by the early modern historian Thormod Dorfeus, one of the true trailblazers of the discipline of Old Norse philology. Philologist means a lover of words, one who studies a culture through its vernacular sources. I have to confess that I am not optimistic about the future of my discipline, that is, Old Norse philology. And that is why I think it is suitable to talk about Tormod Torfeus, because when you ponder the end, I often find that it helps to consider the beginning. Maybe it is ironic, or maybe it is actually symptomatic of the way that things are, that when I was a young student, I didn't really care all that much about research history, about the assumptions and ideas of scholars whose ideas had been already discarded, maybe several generations back. That is to say that I bought into some of the most common prejudices of academic thought that often encourages dismissal of thinkers who, at the end of the day, were guilty of nothing more than being before us, and who didn't possess the luxury of smugness afforded by latecomers. I assumed that by sticking mainly to the freshest ideas of my time, I would be able to penetrate all of the secrets of the ancient times much more accurately than people who came many generations before me, who didn't have access to all of the tools and resources that I myself had at my disposal. According to the seventh stanza of the Eddic poem of Wallisbor, one of the first things that the gods did, after they created the world itself, was to create tools. It took some maturity before I stopped to consider that these tools that I used were only attainable to me due to the untiring work of previous generations of scholars. And as years at the university came and went, I came to develop a greater reverence and appreciation for the traditions of my discipline, with emphasis on the term discipline, because that's what academia demands. It's not necessarily so that I always agreed with every school of thought within Old Norse philology. That's not the point. You would have to be schizophrenic to do so, after all. Rather, there are agreed-upon conventions and principles to abide by that are there for a reason. The sources may be textual, but the tradition surrounding its study is oral. It's no different from how stories and know-how are passed from mouth to ear in any tribal society or company or guild of craftsmen or whatever. In principle, everybody knows that if you bang two rocks together, you can hypothetically make flint tools, but you need a fucking teacher to show you how it's done. Extracurricularly speaking, the academic subculture that I stepped into almost 15 years ago was an apocalyptic one. The University of Bergen was a proud institution that had fostered many important scholars of Old Norse. Nobody seemed to have their hopes up that the department would survive in any recognizable form over the next five years. Everybody had the sense that this would possibly be among the final chapters of Old Norse philology altogether, at least in Norwegian academia. Maybe it would last another 10 years. But one figure I looked up to particularly, who is among my biggest influences on my view of academia more widely, openly projected that the field of Old Norse philology itself would probably not even exist in 20 to 25 years. It was so bad in my time that, like, on certain courses, if there were seven students instead of, say, five, that was a victory. Not that I mean that there's any great need for Old Norse philologists in wider society, but I think that... <laughs> In a system where a discipline is only as important as the amount of students it has, a declining number of students is a death sentence. One of the jobs that I had as a tutor was to basically shame the deadbeats into at least taking the fucking exams, so that Old Norse will hopefully just not die in a whimper. 
But I also tried to motivate them, you know, by demonstrating that it's useful to know this stuff if you're planning to become, say, an anthropologist or an archaeologist or a Norwegian teacher, and that you can be creative with this stuff. I used to delight these students by making them read chapters of Jackson Crawford's reimagining of Star Wars as an Icelandic saga, Tatuinar Döla saga, as he calls it, which he wrote in old fucking Norse, way before, I think, he even thought about making YouTube videos. And I'm not really a Star Wars fan or anything, but it's silly and fun. Breaks you out of those familiar old habits. Makes you think out of the box. Maybe this sounds like science fiction to people who went to, say, commercial colleges in the United States. The concept here is not that any of this is for profit. The discipline is there because that its very existence is supposed to be an enrichment for society as a whole, which of course implies certain duties unto the general public, like educationally speaking, and so on and so on. But uh, yeah, there's a whole other can of worms. One out of many possible justifications for the continued existence of Old Norse as a maintained discipline at the university is to stave off cultural amnesia. But facing the constant risk that the university might suddenly decide to just drop the entire thing means that whatever we were doing were just kind of there to stall the inevitable death of an ever more neglected aspect of our cultural, linguistic, and literary heritage. To not even talk about academic heritage, the University of Bergen grew out of the Bergen Museum. You can trace the science and humanities bits back to the natural and cultural historical museum departments, or whatever I should call it. So obviously that made me even more bitter of this academic ette stupa. Whenever any other obstacles entered my life, I was always determined that if everything else went to shit, then at least I was wasting my life on something that was worth saving and promoting, that was outside of myself. For better or worse, you developed this kind of savior complex associated with it. And I think that that was kind of encouraged. It worked as a sort of vetting process almost within the academic field. But it takes a specific sort of person to actually follow up on it, right? It was a scene that encouraged that sort of fatalism. And by the way, I can only really speak for myself on this topic. But time and time again, you can ask yourself, what's the point? The thought experiment that my teachers exposed me to was that maybe there is none. But if you still feel compelled to waste your life on something that might be entirely pointless at the end of the day, I think that that reinforces that thing rather than the other way around. There's something numinous at play here, something that divorces it from rationality. That's how I feel about it anyway. Point is that there's no other reward to be expected but the privilege of intimacy with the sources. Though, well beyond that promise, I am rewarded with the privilege of having an audience that I can yak about this shit to. You, dear listener, the invisible choir. There's a drive there. The reason why I make this podcast is because it's more painful not to. Maybe one day it will be the other way around and I won't be making podcasts anymore. But that's not today. As of today, I am still a masochist. The show must go on. Working in museums, I was taught anyway that none of the things we're trying to preserve will survive for perpetuity. But that's not the goal. The best we can do is to hope that it won't vanish on our watch. Some listeners may be burning up with interjections and objections, saying, But Eric... Vikings are so popular right now. They're everywhere in the pop culture. Yeah, I see that stuff, and I recognize absolutely nothing of what I admire about Norse culture in there. These may be someone's Vikings, but they sure as hell ain't mine. And it's not gonna last. 
Many people were excited when the Viking pop culture boom hit, with music, video games, movies, TV series. I hated that stuff instinctually, to the point where I probably didn't even want to give actual talent the light of day. But now, you know, 10 years on, I feel like my worst fears about it were confirmed completely. Yeah, maybe some of the people listening to this podcast first encountered this stuff through this sort of pop culture. But my general impression is that there are very few people who graduate from watching fucking Vikings to reading a fucking saga. In fact, I'm willing to bet money that people who have read, say, Egil Saga or the entire Poetic Edda are outnumbered a thousand to one against people who draw mother-loving runes on their forehead using eyeliner while they do a little dance on TikTok or whatever. I remember back in the day, I used to debate people about this, and they were saying, well, this is gonna bring more attention to the field, which is gonna translate into more students, which is gonna raise awareness about Old Norse in general, which is gonna translate into more grants and more job opportunities for people like you. Fucking horseshit. Taking into account the death of the author, not everybody involved in these projects had intended it to go quite this bad. I don't want any individuals out there thinking I'm attacking them in particular, because that's not what I'm doing. I'm talking about this depersonalized, monstrous blob of Vikich Borealism. Nobody, me, you, or anybody else, has any control over how your product is received out in the open, wild world out there. I mean, it's not your fault if some fucking cargo cult worships you as a living god because you released a compelling album. But yeah, the discipline may not be dead quite yet. But has any of this actually led to more job opportunities for any of us? Have the hordes of antler-wearing Viking juggalos improved anything about the discipline? <laughs> not that I've seen. But maybe the general public is more aware of the past, and perhaps Scandinavians in particular are better informed about their own cultural history than they used to be. No, I think that actually, on both accounts, the exact opposite is true. Instead, we are living in a time where everything Norse is governed by trends and a weird sort of neo-Victorian fetishization, in which there is an absurd need to project the modern attitude onto the past, molesting it, really, as if to suggest that the only past that we can stomach and tolerate is the past that conforms with the aesthetic or idealistic sensibilities that people already have, and possess independently of it. Where the only Vikings left alive are the ones that are marketable, that taste like chicken nuggets. None of this is new, of course. There's just so much more of it now than there ever was before. What is the Viking in 2021, if not, on the one hand, a human shield in the culture war, or on the other, a sales funnel for beard oil? Norse culture reduced to an image macro of Ragnar Lodbrok, spouting ancient Viking sayings like, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. What kind of a sociopath thinks that that's a good saying, by the way? But maybe I'm being too uncharitable. Maybe I'm part of the problem. I am, after all, one of these scholars who put on a hat with little bells on and do a little dance for spear change, incentivized by Patreon donations to keep on spewing my snobbish bullshit. Maybe it's your fault, actually. Yeah, what can you say? A wise man once said, But at least I don't endorse concepts that view the past as just yet another commodity to be bought and sold. Another trend, another slogan, another buzzword. A hostage for whatever passing crusade is currently going on. Whether for the most default of contemporary sentiments, or the most extreme. When the TikToker has filmed her final lip sync. When the antlers are put back on the wall where they belong. 
when all of the tourists have moved on to something else? Will the universities suddenly find some spare change to throw at antiquarian disciplines? I highly doubt so. How awfully awkward that it seems that adjacent departments are being put down left and right, like sick animals. It seems a little counterintuitive, no? If it's really as in vogue as I'm being told it is. I suppose the mentality is that the textbooks will always be there, so the discipline will survive regardless. I mean, you can pick up a book and teach yourself Old Norse, sure. But how much is lost when the last person of a living line of academics who taught, say, Old High German or the Gothic language has finally taught their last student? What is lost when only the textbook remains? I mean, where do you go from there? In this episode, we're going to become well acquainted with people who had to suffer through such a process. People who, on their own, basically had to invent or reinvent or co-invent the entire study of Scandinavian antiquity, thereby paving the way for modern archaeology, renology, philology, onomastics, historiography. Parts of this story are specific to their time, while other parts seem eternal. We will hear about events that sound almost like motifs out of some story. A saga, maybe. I recommend that you listen to the previous episode, number 37, of Alsness Forever, before listening to this one. But either way, I am Old Norse philologist Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. This is the saga of Tormod Torfeus. If you ever watched Blade Runner, you know, of course, the Tears in Rain monologue, a reflection on the marvelous things that are lost when memory of it extinguishes. It could so easily have been just the same way with the entire Old Norse literature. Every scholar on the planet will tell you that the body of sources, especially for, say, Norse mythology, isn't ideal. But let's compare, for example, with any other European mythology that isn't, say, Greek. Even the Romans. They didn't really leave us any narrative mythological texts. And while the rest of their religion is well documented, we know next to nothing about most pre-Christian religions of Europe. And on a more general cultural level, it is impossible to imagine all of the poetry and songs and deities and ancient heroes and mythical events and cultic expressions that are gone forever. But I can point you to a body of texts so vast that it would probably take you two lifetimes to get through all of it. It is funny that Old Norse has such a vast and voluminous body of literature, and that it should concern itself so much with its own preliterate past. Undoubtedly, much due to a quirk of Icelandic culture saturated with fascination for its own pre-settlement past. Norse literary production and its survival is really quite an anomaly when you think about it. But the survival of Norse literature was not a given thing. It's not as if there's been a continuous and constant awareness of its existence even in Iceland, now invaluable manuscripts were seen as old trash. And if it hadn't been for people like the subject of our episode, Tormod Torfeus, and the circles that he frequented, there's a very real possibility that we would have known next to nothing about not only Norse mythology, but Norse society and culture more widely. 
the Norse corpus encompasses not only mythological texts and sagas and courtly literature, but also laws, edicts, correspondences, religious and philosophical texts, handbooks, bestiaries, medical manuals, travelogues, academic and scientific work on everything from grammar to mathematics, astronomy, and astrology. Torfeus made massive contributions to the rediscovery of the Norse past. You know, Scandi futuristically speaking, for the future there must be a past, right? And arguably Torfeus created a future for the past to inhabit. A past that, in many ways, just didn't exist when he first started working with this shit. I'll give you an example. If you go to the Bergenhus Fortress in Bergen, Norway, you can visit the Royal Hall where the king sat back in the 13th century, when Norse society was undergoing sort of a renaissance, and the Norwegian realm was at its greatest territorial, cultural, and geopolitical extent. By Torfeus's times, it was used as a cannon battery and granary at various points, and nobody had a single fucking clue that this strange old stone hall had been the very center of Norwegian power a power that commissioned and incentivized Icelandic and Norwegian scribes to record its glory. The past had not yet revealed itself in any presently recognizable form, you dig? And it's likely that we only really figured this out because of people like him, perhaps even as a result of his work directly. Torfeus was, in many ways, the perfect storm of his circumstances. The right man in the right context at the right point in history. But even as a literate person in Iceland in the 1600s, it's still not a given that you can read medieval manuscripts. Sure, the language might recognizably be a rustic version of your own vernacular, but it took specialization to read, say, Gothic script, or decode common abbreviation symbols. But literacy is also context and intertextuality. Being able to read letters is not the same thing as understanding the content being expressed. Trophaeus was trained to read medieval script from a very young age. Initially, this training was not meant to enrich his inner world with ancient stuff. People were taught this so that they could go on to study law and theology and such. What sets him apart from his peers is that he actually gave a rat's ass about some of the passion projects of his teachers, who were themselves very unique individuals, who possessed the motivation to pursue the Nordic antiquities. He must have been flabbergasted by some of the things he read in these manuscripts. A secret world that nobody else in the world really knew about. Or if they did, they had a very superficial understanding of it. Most people probably didn't even give a hoot. Especially not the past of unimportant shit-kickers out in the provinces. The manuscripts carefully guarded by his teachers bore witness to a profound cultural amnesia that isn't in itself unique to Iceland or Scandinavian culture, but which Iceland happened to possess a rare cure for. And at this point in time, they were just barely starting to scratch the surface. But in these books, stashed away in rubbish piles and stuffed under beds and up in the lofts, he would see that the tragic heroes of classical antiquity and the tomfoolery of the Greek gods had its own Scandinavian counterparts. He might see that these ancient tales, which had formed the basis of philosophical discussion rediscovered in the Renaissance, could just as easily have been made on the basis of these strange tales from the north. Learned men knew the story of Prometheus by heart, but not the binding of Loki, or they'd refer to the myth of Sisyphus, never the perpetual battle of Jadningawig, that there existed family dramas in the Icelandic sagas that were easily as captivating as the Iliad they were completely ignorant of, for the simple reason that... Well, okay, the reasons aren't really that simple. Before we go on to talk more about Torfeus and his life, I'd like to just provide you with some background on the material that he was working with. So we're going to be talking about books a little longer. For one thing, Norse literature was first and foremost vernacular literature. That is to say, 
it doesn't really have any use outside of a Norse-speaking context. Nobody in France was reading Old Norse sagas, but Norse people were reading French literature, translated into Old Norse. Maybe things would have looked very different today, if Old Norse literature was in fact written in Latin. But it's foolish to speculate about this. Of course, there are some exceptions. You have Saxo Grammaticus's Deeds of the Danes, Gesta Danorum, which was expressly commissioned by Archbishop Absalon to make up for the fact that the Danes had no Latin history to demonstrate their worth. This was in the 12th century, so comparatively early too. Another factor to consider is that Western Norse, that is to say Icelandic and Norwegian literary production was hell of a lot more vast than that of our Swedish and Danish brethren. However, Norway was, as we will later see, brutally thrown under the history bus later in the Middle Ages, and became for several hundred years an underdog to Sweden and Denmark. Which of course means that Norwegian and Icelandic affairs were not exactly top priority. The rediscovery of Norse literature is actually quite similar to the rediscovery of classical literature in the Renaissance, and I suppose also Middle Ages, which was also thought to be lost, but with a big difference. Namely that Latin was basically read by every educated person in Europe at the time. Norse literature was eccentric in this regard. Even if only a certain portion could read it, anybody could understand the contents if it were read aloud, for example. And never did this happen at such a grassroots level as medieval Iceland, which carried on its shoulders the historical and cultural memory of mainland Scandinavia. The extent of medieval literary production in mainland Scandinavia is negotiable. From Denmark we have the aforementioned Saxo, and otherwise mostly religious and legal texts. Though the Danes also have their curiosities, such as the medical and botanical works of Henrik Harpstring, and the controversial 13th century philosopher Boethius. And then Swedish literature is altogether scant, though it also warrants mention that Denmark, and especially Sweden, is heavily featured in the legendary material. Norway, at least, had a decent vernacular production of literature that is well documented, even though not all of it survives, much of it consisting of courtly literature, translations of continental works, and so on, mainly for the purpose of educating the elites. Some sagas were also produced in Norway, but for a lot of that stuff, Norway actually relied on its subject state of Iceland, kind of the Indian call center of the Norwegian realm. Saga writing was outsourced to the Icelanders because they were widely considered to be very good at it, precisely because they were thought to have the best overview of historical affairs, an established tradition of literary conservancy, and a high degree of literacy for its small population. And much of the stuff that survives from the Norwegian corpus only really does so in copies that were penned in Iceland, who counted Norway as its closest cultural affiliate, even the Urheimat, of the Icelandic people itself. Which is not a meaningless statement, though the reality is a fair bit more complex. Regardless, Norway's debt to Iceland is particularly large. And this is something that Torfeus, who sometimes refers to Icelanders and Norwegians under a collective we, was acutely aware of. When Torfeus wrote some of the very first histories of the Scandinavians and their diasporas, he did so in Latin, a because that was the convention at the time, and b obviously because he wanted this to be read all over the world, which allowed him to print all five volumes of his history of Norway in 500 copies. For a long time, his histories, and his history of Norway in particular, was the work to refer to when discussing the doings and expansion of the Norsemen. But being a trailblazer has its drawbacks. Ironically, some of these circumstances that shaped Torfeus would lead later scholars of the 19th and 20th century to dismiss him and his work. And since very little of it was ever translated from Latin, the scholars who smeared him kind of got the final word. 
partially due to a general decline in Latin literacy in academia, which meant, of course, that very few people could form their own opinions about him. So, summa summarum, the common opinion about Torfeus in modern times has largely been shaped by those who read him like the devil reads the Bible. You always get this when there's some kind of paradigm shift. There seems to be an acute impulse in academia to almost smear the work of some passé scholar whenever they fall out of fashion. It sort of feels like the academic equivalent to having a phase where you claim to hate your dad. I mean, I was myself deterred from looking into Torfeus just based on that kind of hearsay, that there's no value in reading this kind of stuff for a serious modern academic. I mean, cut him some fucking slack, will ya? You know, what's Torfeus's fault here, that he wasn't psychic? I mean, it was just a dude. Faulty like the rest of us, he was a man of his time. But there are many such cases and Torfeus just happens to be one. Obviously. Torfeus's work does show its age, but we can compare those critiques to a modern road worker critiquing the path of the very first man who cut his way through the forest along the dare tracks that the paved road now rests on. In one sense, Torfeus was not just judged on the basis of changing source-critical perspectives, but also due to his character. He was known as a rowdy man who loved his vices, enjoyed and maybe even preferred the company of the common folk. He was a promiscuous booze hound who, to top it all off, was also a murderer. Undoubtedly, his bacchanalian reputation did not buy him a lot of slack in scholarly circles. He was, basically, cancelled. Mind you, this historical injustice has been corrected in recent times, and that's the only reason why it's possible for me to make this episode in the first place. There's been a privately financed effort, actually, to translate Torfeus's History of Norway into Norwegian for the first time. I've managed to secure the first out of a total of six volumes, which are all, sadly, out of print. Working out of the publisher's Saga book, a small compendium on Torfeus has also been published, which I've also used for this episode. And then most recently, Bergsvin Birgisson wrote the popular non-fiction book about Torfeus and his life, which I also relied on, besides scattered mentions recovered from my old university curriculum. Now Bergsvin Birgisson's book, Mannen fra Middelalon, translates as The Man from the Middle Ages, and puts great emphasis on Torfeus's outsider status, as a man standing sort of between the medieval and the modern, a sometimes tortured eccentric who marched to the beat of his own drum, and in fact, often completely out of step with the world around him. It kind of feels like I'm doing a second intro here, but let me just say it in plain English, my hidden agenda for this episode that you probably already guessed by now. My initial intent with this episode is obviously to celebrate the life and times of an unsung hero of the study of Scandinavian antiquity. But it's also a suitable soapbox from which to remind ourselves just how vulnerable academia is to fleeting trends, fashions, ideologies, and how these circumstances manipulate our perception of and the emphasis that we put on our sources, often based on how inclined we are to believe or disbelieve them, often for reasons that are entirely contemporary. I predict that this will only become more relevant in the future. We're finally getting to the fun stuff, so let's start the next segment with a musical palate cleanser. This is Norljus Jum with Gallner Listen.
Thormodr Torvason was born at the very crack of the dawn of the Age of Reason in 1636 on the Isle of Engei, outside of Reykjavik. When I call him Tormod Torfeus, this is because he Latinized his name in adulthood, as was the fashion at the time. Iceland had one of the lowest GDPs in early modern Europe. Most people were simply dirt poor, living in cold, damp, dusty turf houses at the complete mercy of the elements. When outsiders describe the way that Icelanders live, they describe them as dwelling in nothing more but mud huts. And at times, that was probably not so far from the truth either. For centuries, Icelanders had to make do with very little, employing themselves in a dangerous fishing economy that often claimed lives. Entire households shared beds for warmth, heated their houses and cooked their meals on dirty peat-fueled hearths, joints and tendons aching from years of hard labor in unforgiving weather conditions, smoke stinging their eyes and fucking up their lungs. It reminds me of something that my friend and colleague Axel Klausen pointed out, that when we talk about the living conditions of the Viking Age, at the end of the day, it's not really that different from how people were still living in more recent times up until the Industrial Revolution. Those who could read did so in the dimness and musk of cod liver oil lamps, just as their ancestors had done in the Middle Ages when the sagas were first admitted to parchment. Just as their ancestors in the Viking Age had done when they transmitted poems and stories orally. And the subjects of some of these legendary stories, who perhaps lived in the Roman period or the Migration period, also froze and lived in the stink of the cod liver oil lamp and in the smoke of the peat-fired hearth. You get the picture. Torfeus would later go on to say that no other people lived so well on so little as the peasantry of West Norway. Like, you may be poor, but you are doing more than just surviving. Torfeus could make this comparison because on his native Iceland, scarcity was the norm. He spent about 50 years of his life in Norway, and I bet he saw people every day who seemed to be doing a hell of a lot better than the peasants were doing back home on Iceland. How would you like to live in a glorified root cellar with dirt floors and snow coming down your smoke vent and all the wood you had for whatever purpose came from driftwood logs and the occasional shipwreck? Most of us wouldn't even call this a house. There's a reason why Icelandic folk music is largely limited to chant and singing. There's no bass surplus to develop, say, a fiddling tradition and play with actual instruments. But I wouldn't say that Icelandic culture is particularly morose. Despite this constant scarcity, it never seemed like Icelanders ever lost their curiosity and their creative spark, even though they had a thousand reasons to be miserable. It wasn't just precarious economic situations that threatened them. In the year 1627, Ottoman pirates raided the Icelandic coast, murdering dozens and capturing 400 locals to be sold in the slave markets of North Africa. 400 people is a lot, even before you take into account that this was between 1 and 2% of the entire Icelandic population. On the 8th of May, just weeks before Torfeus was born, the volcano Hekla erupted, covering the surrounding landscape in ash, which in turn killed massive amounts of livestock, which in turn caused famine. And all of this happened in the middle of a smallpox epidemic. A whopping 90 people were laid to rest only at the church where Tormod was baptized that year. But Tormod was the son of a local sheriff, and there's no reason to think that Tormod lacked any necessities as he grew up. His father was not very well liked, however, and the few sources we have from him suggest that he was quite a ballbuster and quite known for antagonizing people. 
At this point in history, even the relatively near past was shrouded in myth and legend. Antiquarian sciences were crude. For example, runology was just emerging and was considered uh, completely adjacent to the study of Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism, as we would see with the Swedish Gothicists. The few people who were considered experts on the antiquity of Scandinavia understood our ancient ancestors as giants of a heroic age, an age that was only barely beginning to get pieced together to form a more coherent picture, as the learned people of the North gradually discovered the corpus of Norse literature that had somehow survived in the personal collections of some learned Icelanders. Torfeus was born right into this context. He must have spent his childhood in the presence of people who meticulously copied medieval manuscripts by hand, scribbling them down word for word on paper. We don't know a lot about Torfeus's early life, but a few things can be deduced by tracing the environment that he grew up in. He would have encountered some of Iceland's pioneering manuscript collectors, who, besides a wide array of medieval and classical literature, would have had rare Norse manuscripts simply laying around. Many texts that today are considered national treasures carefully stowed away in climate-controlled vaults in the presence of dedicated security guards were, in Torfeus's time, just stuff sitting at the bottom of a chest or between old fishing nets under the bedbunks. And nobody really knew or cared about these old books. At the age of 12, he was sent to the Latin school at Skålholt, which had been the academic and religious center of Iceland for the past 600 years, since the 11th century, in fact. As the name implies, nobody went to the Latin school to read sagas. That sort of stuff simply was not on the curriculum. But this is nonetheless where the young Tormod must have whet his appetite for the ancient history of his own people, as he studied under the tuition of Bishop Brynjolver Sveinsson a pioneering proto-philologist who is personally responsible not only for saving medieval manuscripts by collecting them, but meticulously copying these books word for word, books of science and history, and the pagan ways of their ancestors, all of which would have been just forgotten if it weren't for the efforts of men like him, and perhaps him especially. Bergsvein Birgisson notes a particular incident from Torfeus's school days where a group of unnamed boys were caught dabbling with sorcery, having somehow acquired magical charms and been caught using them. This was grounds for expulsion, but thanks to Bishop Brynjolvur, the boys were excused and were allowed to finish their educations without further consequence. Their anonymity remains intact to this day but Bergsvein seems to believe that Torfeus was among these boys, and I personally would not put it past him. For one thing, Torfeus will later reference some of his own beliefs in personal correspondences with Arne Magnusson. Among other things, Torfeus believed in reincarnation and the prophetic power of dreams. While Arne Magnusson, on his end, did not take Icelandic grimoires lightly, even if, by all accounts, he was more secular and rationally minded than his friend Torfeus was. Besides this, if we imagine that Torfeus was let off the hook for dabbling with witchcraft at a young age, this would explain an important choice that he was to make much later in his life, after the fates had brought him to the shores of Norway. From the Latin school at Skålholt, Torfeus went to Copenhagen, where he became the royal translator of Icelandic antiquities by the age of 24. In other words, he was the personal saga translator of the king, King Frederick III of Denmark-Norway. For those listeners who are not initiated into the mysteries of Scandinavian political history, this Dano-Norwegian personal union was one where the king of Denmark was king not only of Denmark, 
but also Norway and the holdings that Norway had had in the medieval period, which means that Denmark-Norway was actually Denmark-Norway, Iceland-Greenland and the Faroe Islands, and the today German territories of Schleswig-Holstein and Scania, now southern Sweden, let's not forget. Though in Torfeus's lifetime, Denmark would lose that latter territory to war with the Swedes. It's important to bear these inter-Scandinavian hostilities in mind when thinking about Torfeus and his work, because the rediscovery of the Nordic past had profound political implications, and both the Swedes and the Danes wanted these discoveries to come to their specific benefit. The fact that King Frederick III hired Torfeus as the official royal saga translator by 1660 is a reflection of this development. In many ways, we must imagine that Torfeus was living the dream. He was afforded comfy quarters at the royal palace in Copenhagen with good lighting, a fireplace, bread and ale for breakfast. All of this must have seemed like an unthinkable luxury to any Icelander at the time, sheriff's son or not. Now, his patron, King Frederick III of Denmark-Norway, was quite a guy. Historians early or current struggled to come to agreement whether he was an iron-fisted despot or a delicate patriarch. A contemporary of the Sun King, Louis XIV, King Frederick declared himself absolute monarch of Denmark-Norway by 1665. Let us focus for a bit on his court and his interests. At a time when many European monarchs were engaged with bizarre pastimes like fox tossing, Frederick was, above all, a patron of the arts and sciences. He kept a complete wastrel of a court alchemist who was, naturally, better at wasting gold than making it. He commissioned a throne made completely of narwhal tusk. A more Nordic item can scarcely be imagined. I mean, narwhal, the unicorn of the Arctic. And it goes well beyond that. Forget everything about hookers and blow. The aristocrats and men of science at the Danish court were snorting powdered narwhal ivory as a remedy for all sorts of ailments. Frederick was also obsessed with history and installed a curiosity cabinet, a chamber of arts at the royal palace, which Torfeus, through his work, would have been intimately familiar with. It was quite the sight to behold, brimming with books and curiosities and artifacts from all corners of the world. Weapons, fossils, crystals, live turtles, monkeys, and stuffed armadillos and whatnot. Speaking of curiosities, perusing the Chamber of Arts, Torfeus would have been quite acquainted with the dreaded Necronomicon of Abdul al-Hazred. That is, if the Necronomicon had been real instead of just an invention of H.P. Lovecraft's. You see, Lovecraft states that the original translator of the Necronomicon was the Danish polymath, Olaus Warmius, who had his collection absorbed into the Royal Chamber of the Arts upon his death in 1654. The Necronomicon, naturally, would have made its way into the Royal Library. It goes to follow that our protagonist would have had access to this most dreadful tome. And I personally choose to imagine Tormod Torfeus consulting this most blasphemous legendary grimoire in search of a spell, perhaps to cure his hangover or jock itch maybe. So there you have my personal Lovecraftian headcanon, which is sadly not true, but probably for the best. Because if so, I might have found more than just a stale pack of communion wafers in that wretched church where he was buried. Instead of talking to you right now, it's much more likely that I'd have fallen swiftly to an unspeakable fate like so many other Lovecraftian protagonists before me. But even if Torfeus did not go on to become a priest of Dagon on the shores of my home island Carme, the reality of his circumstances are nevertheless both fantastic and strange. Ek Hlevagastij Holtiaj Horna Tawido. I, Hlevagastij Holtiaj, made the horn. 
So reads a Proto-Norse Elder Futhark inscription on the second of the two golden horns of Galahus, which are, as the name implies, two gold horns from the 5th century AD, which are, in some cases, considered symbols of Danish antiquity itself. Though they were initially deposited close together, fate wanted it so that they were found about a century apart from each other. When the first golden horn at Galahus was discovered by the lacemaker Kirsten Svensdotter in 1639, it was promptly sent to the king because the king owned the sole right to all gold found on Danish soil. It didn't take long before this grand migration period artifact came into the possession of Prince Christian, who turned it into a functional drinking horn. When he died and was followed by King Frederick III, the horn was still passed around at parties at the royal palace. Therefore, we should likely assume that Torfeus on several occasions had the honor of sipping choice liquors brimming from the rim of one of the rarest archaeological artifacts of Iron Age Scandinavia. All in all, it was a pretty sweet gig for Torfeus. He earned 300 riksdaler a year, amounting to roughly $121,000 in today's currency. By contrast, a tenant farmer could expect about 10 riksdaler a year, and a craftsman, 50. Many of his expenses, such as clothing, lodgings, and servants, were provided by the palace, along with the heated chambers and the beer for breakfast that I already mentioned. When absolute monarchy was established in the Twin Kingdoms, no Norwegian dignitaries were invited. Upon protest, one response was apparently that Norwegians do in fact not exist. We are all but citizens under the Danish crown. It is interesting then that Torfeus was hired to translate texts that, above all, deal with Icelandic and Norwegian affairs and often contradict the work of the esteemed Danish chronicler Saxo Grammaticus. For this reason, Torfeus must have come across as a bit of a controversial figure to some, who delivered news about ancient affairs that didn't always reflect favorably on the interests of national propaganda. Yet it is important to recognize the potential motivations uh, for hiring such a person in the first place. At the time, it was an established historical belief that the Danish monarchs in part descended from Norwegian kings of particular importance. So in that regard, the king probably had a vested interest in backing this up by medieval sources. He also wanted significant Old Norse texts to be translated into Latin so that the deeds of their Nordic ancestors could be read and admired by learned people all over the world. The rediscovery of Old Norse literature and legendary sagas and historical texts in particular would allow the world to see that the Scandinavians had their own Iliad, so to speak, and could hold their own in terms of myths and legends just as well as any of the ancient classical civilizations could. Torfeus follows the historiographical tradition of his time, which in turn derives from medieval historiography. In the context of Old Norse, one of the main sages he was inepted to would have been Snorri Sturluson, who helped establish a foundation of euhemeristic interpretations of the Norse pantheon, for example, historicizing the gods, the Asir, as merely an ancient culture or tribe who seized power in Scandinavia and were wrongfully crystallized as gods either by accident or design. Either way, Torfeus and his contemporaries agreed with medieval chroniclers that the gods were just people. Torfeus, on his part, equates the Norse gods with the Scythians, whom he assumes migrated into Scandinavia in ancient times, and therefore make a part of the deep Scandinavian ancestry. It's also important to note that some of the things that Torfeus says that seem strange to us aren't necessarily the things that landed him in hot water in his own time. 
The things about Tormutor Faes's authorship that offended people's sensibilities were the points at which he spoke against some common dogmas at the time, just by the mere fact that he was offering to lift up the Norwegian story, which he thought had been buried in spite not only of its ancient renown, but also in spite of its overwhelming amount of sources. While the Danes, on their end, mostly relied on one work by one single author, Saxo Grammaticus and his Deeds of the Danes. Given that the pile of Danish antiquarian sources was as flat as their landscape, you can imagine that many Danes were not too pleased at having this Icelandic whippersnapper shitting all over them from his mountain of books, basically refuting one Danish delusion after the other, and doing so on the king's dole. Arguing, for example, that the proud and ancient Danish royal line, as described by Saxo, consisted partially of kings that the chronicler had pulled straight out of his own ass. And let's just say that Saxo elsewhere um, kind of demands... Um, how should I put this? Suspension of disbelief? That's obviously not to say that we should follow Icelandic texts blindly, or that the sagas aren't full of lies and half-truths too, but at least there's more material to draw from and compare with. So this was probably bad enough for some, but when he went out and used his fancy Icelandic books to argue that Rollo, the Viking Duke of Normandy, was not in fact a Dane, but Norwegian, a theory that still stands to this day, that probably didn't add to his popularity among the Danish aristocrats who had already had their dicks flattened by a king who had just taken away many of their privileges by making himself an autocratic dictator. All in all, Torfeus was sailing on the high seas of Danish tears. But uh, ding dong, we've been talking about Icelanders, Norwegians, and Danes. Even the Faroese have been mentioned briefly so far, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. What about the Swedes? As many people are probably aware, there's a long tradition of banter between the Nordic countries. We play the role of stooges in each other's jokes, and it's all good. It's been that way since times immemorial, and in the 17th century it was no different. Oh boy, the memories we have. Yeah, I remember this one joke, it was really fucking good. Like, <laughs> do you remember when that, when that... I'm sorry. When the when the Swedes uh, 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 stole the entire region of Scania from on, right under the Danes' noses, and and just started a fucking ethnic cleansing, going from door to door, just genociding Danes, just rounding up entire villages and massacring everybody. <laughs> setting fire to innocent peasant houses oh that was a funny prank wasn't it good fucking lord and then the king of denmark is like well that's really funny sweden i'm gonna send my army there and recapture skona land and you just fucking lose like ten thousand soldiers trying to recapture it and it's lost forever <laughs> yeah we fight but that just shows you just how much we love each other so the jokes extended into the sphere of Tormor Tufeus as well, we can only assume. Because the Swedes better be fucking joking with some of the claims that they were making at this time. I mean, make up your own mind at the end of this episode, but at least Tormor was somewhat sober in his assumptions about things. Let's talk about that too. So in Sweden, amazing new discoveries were being made. Fantastic ones. Unparalleled. Absolutely insane, in fact. And the star of the show was the nutty professor Olaf Rudbeck. Megalogothic Gigachad Supreme. Olaf Rudbeck was a Swedish polymath credited with the discovery of the lymphatic system. He was also an engineer, albeit not a particularly good one, or so my sources claim. But he was certainly a better engineer than he was a historian and linguist, though these would soon become his obsessions. 
In his monumental Atlantica, Rudbeck deduced, mostly based on one single Norse text, that the lost continent of Atlantis was in fact Sweden, and that Swedish culture was basically the cradle of civilization. Swedish, then, was naturally the most ancient language. In one particularly ironic and insane flex, Olaf Rudbeck basically invented archaeological stratigraphic dating methods that are conceptually still exactly the same today. Only in Rudbeck's case, his model was so way off that he completely fudged the entire chronology, producing datings of Iron Age burials that made them out to be thousands upon thousands of years older than they are. Something must have been awfully wrong with his yardstick, too, since the skeletons he examined were measured to be several feet longer than any skeleton surviving in the Scandinavian archaeological record. But nevertheless, Rudbeck rejoiced in his discovery that the Swedes were the true descendants of ancient Hyperborean giants who lived to be centuries old. The whole thing about Atlantis sinking into the ocean was just a big misconception, based on the fact that the wood-based architecture of Swedish Atlantis had disintegrated with old age. Funny enough, Olaf Rudbeck is ancestor to Alfred Nobel, the founder of the Nobel Prize, so there's that. One of my very favorite details here is that Rudbeck was the forerunner to providing higher education in vernacular languages instead of just Latin at universities. <laughs> but the kicker here is that, of course, why should you offer courses in Latin if Latin derives from fucking Swedish, right? Well, okay. <clears throat> As you might have guessed, the rather unsober ideas of Swedish megalogothicism did not sit very well with the Danish enemy. And so, Denmark and Sweden found itself locked in a sort of antiquarian arms race, where Denmark had to impose a ban on the export of Icelandic manuscripts outside of the Danish realm, basically to keep the sagas out of Swedish hands. In response to this, Sweden literally employed spies to sneak around Iceland trying to make under-the-table acquisitions of medieval manuscripts. Sweden was essentially an antiquarian rogue state at this point that was mining the freaking sagas for weapons of mass expansion. The fate of almost everything we have come to know from and about Norse literature was determined in this period. And we know for a fact that not everything survived. For one thing, the Christian Reformation had dissolved the monastic system across Northern Europe, and a distaste for everything bearing the taint of medieval Catholicism resulted in the loss of countless volumes that had originally been in the safekeeping of monastic libraries. In the early modern period, people found many new uses for old and unwanted medieval parchments. Some were made into stiffeners for hats, or cut into templates for clothes patterns used in fireworks production, or ironically, even stuffed into book spines. The bookbinder's equivalent to making sausage, I suppose. One Norwegian manuscript fragment bearing the ironic shelf mark AM666B Quarto only survives because it was used to stiffen up a bishop's mitra, for instance. And in Torfeus' own time, in the middle of this cultural-historical Cold War, we know of one manuscript collector who sent pony caravans of medieval manuscripts to be loaded onto a ship bound for Denmark, but the ship itself tragically sank off the eastern coast of Iceland, and we can only imagine what sort of texts went down with it. For all we know, there could have been a whole new fucking Eddic corpus on that very ship. Torfeus went on several expeditions back to Iceland, and was personally responsible for bringing invaluable texts back to the Royal Library, including, among other things, the Codex Regius, which is easily the single most important manuscript of Norse mythology. It was only discovered in 1643 by Torfeus's mentor, Brynjolfur Svensson, the aforementioned bishop at Skaulholt. Codex Regius is the sole source of most of the Eddic poems. 
According to Arne Magnusson, a younger friend and colleague of Trofeus, the two of them would sometimes rummage through the peasant hovels and under the beds among the clutter find old manuscripts filled with gothic writing that people just couldn't read. Arne Magnusson would later go on to become secretary of the Royal Archives and professor of Danish antiquities, and most of all the Old Norse manuscripts surviving to this day were part of the collection that he assembled, which today is housed at the Arne Magnin Institute at the University of Iceland. But even if it was, the venerable bishop Brynjolfur Sveinsson, who inspired Torfeus and Magnusson, and equipped them with the tools to do their work, and often smoked out some of the most essential manuscripts, Magnusson's own impressive body of work was nonetheless built on a foundation provided by Torfeus's pioneering legwork. Yet, should you go to Iceland and approach any Icelander on the Laugarvegur High Street in Reykjavik and ask them if they know who this Arne Magnusson asshole is or this Herr Brynjolfur Sveinsson bastard, they would, you know, affirm that they know who they are because they learned about them in school and both of them are depicted on Icelandic currency. They'll duly recognize them as two personalities who saved Iceland's legacy for the future, and know by implication that this also means the legacy of mainland Scandinavia. Ask them about Tormund Torfeus, they won't have a clue. In fact, if you go anywhere in the Nordic area, at least outside of a university setting, the result will be exactly the same. Nobody knows about Tormund Torfeus, excepting, of course, some people on Karme in West Norway. When I studied Old Norse philology in the beginning of the 21st century, I had the benefit of working at the butt end of 300 years of scholarly inquiry on the subject. I could go to any bookshelf at the institute and pick freely at a discipline that had been chewing the cud for generations. I had access to knowledgeable professors that I could bother about anything I didn't understand, and cross-reference editions and works written about just about any subject pertaining to Old Norse that I had the imagination to think of. Torfeus couldn't really lean on such a tradition because it didn't quite yet exist. The handful of people he could talk to about these subjects were all pretty much people within his network, but they couldn't necessarily provide answers to some of the things that he must have wondered about. This was his field to plow. That's why, in many of Torfeus's early works especially, he doesn't really translate poetic sources such as skaldic poems or even poems of the Eddic style, and this is because he didn't really know what to make of them. Norse poetic sources can be vastly different and often far more challenging than working with prose. You can also see this in his monumental history of Norway, the Historia Rerum Norvegicarum, where he casually refers to a big runic inscription in southern Norway, provides first the runic letters, and then a completely gibberish Latin transcribation without any attempt at trying to figure out the meaning of what it actually says. This is obviously because Torfeus didn't have the privilege of an established runological academic tradition to lean into. He would have been familiar with runes on a general level through his work, but the principles of modern runology just didn't exist. In his early translation work for the king, while he worked on the monumental Flateyarbok, you can tell that he fought more like a historian than a translator. Bergsven Birgisson even points out that Torfeus's modus operandi is similar to that of a medieval scribe, omitting the stuff that he found unlikely. In the legendary saga of Thorstein Vikingsson, there's a passage where the protagonist travels to India. Reasonably, this probably never happened. But instead of just leaving it be like a normal translator would, Torfeus simply swaps it for something that makes sense to him. That's basically the same approach that Snorri Sturluson had. Whenever he encountered something that didn't make sense, he just swapped it for something he found more likely, in order to produce a narrative where all the sources harmonize in a coherent story. 
one major difference being that in his histories, he takes care to actually mention um, ideas that he doesn't agree with and kind of allows the reader to, to make up their own minds. In his later magnum opus on Norway, he includes a discussion spanning several chapters on whether or not trolls are real. He goes back and forth a little bit and then kind of uh, ends up concluding that they're not real in the fantastic sense that they're depicted as in the ancient tales, but argues, as he very often does, that this is a form of truth concealed in fable, and that the trolls are actually a race of prehistoric biblical-style giants who account for part of the Scandinavian deep ancestry, along with the Gothic peoples and Scythians. In these parts, he also spends a lot of time debunking the ideas of, say, Olaf Rudbeck, who claims that the Goths are the ancestors of the Trojans and whatnot, which seems weird sitting in a 21st century reading, but uh, this was not established fact, you know, back then. He was the very first person to ever translate some of the most important Old Norse texts that have ever been recovered, some of which would never be touched again until recently. When Flateyrbok was finally translated into Norwegian for the first time, only in the 2000s, it took a team of six philologists six years to do so, amounting to seven volumes. It only took Torfeus two years to do it all himself, that is, for his Latin version, which is very impressive, even if you can clearly tell that he was kind of speedrunning the 255 vellum leaves that make up the parchment manuscript. As I'm kind of getting at, Flate Arbuk is a tremendously important work, not just in its original 14th century context, or even as a primary source, it is also fundamentally a symbolic object for all sorts of reasons. It was intended originally as a gift for Olaf IV Håkonsson, a very young teenage king who happened to be in the advantageous position of being king of both Norway and Denmark, and was due to inherit the crown of Sweden, which would have made him the first king of the Scandinavian trinity, so to speak. 133 calves were slaughtered to make the parchment that Flateyrbok was written on, making it the single largest manuscript in the entire Old Norse corpus. Sadly, the king died in 1397, at the measly age of 16 before the book was even finished. And tragically, his death marked the end of the Norwegian line of succession, thereby ending the Norwegian political and cultural empire that Flateyrbok was meant to celebrate a culture that would then successively decline and succumb to cultural amnesia and political impotence. Despite this clown car of disasters that fell upon the Norwegian realm in the 14th century, the scribes completed the book. Only, instead of presenting it before the pan-Scandinavian king, the first ruler of the entire collected Nordic, it just sat in Iceland, mostly untouched, save for the prying fingers of the odd book collector until Tormod Torfeus's sensei, Brynjolvur Sveinsson, supposedly bribed the owner with a bottle of French claret, Bordeaux wine, sometime in the mid-1600s. And it was Torfeus himself who physically carried the massive tome to the Royal Library in Copenhagen, where he penned his aforementioned translation. If the translation itself could have been better, it certainly helped Torfeus internalize its contents. When Torfeus later moved to Norway, he casually borrowed Flateyrbok and kept it in his house for a cool 22 years while working on his magnum opus. While Torfeus also had access to many other books, the contents of Flateyrbok were voluminous enough to allow him to write the first ever modern histories of the Faroe Islands, the Orkneys, the Norse settlement of Vinland and Greenland respectively. In some of these works, he pioneered ideas and presented arguments that would later directly lead to the discovery of the Norse settlement of Lanzomedor in Newfoundland some 250 years later, as the Ingstad expedition worked on a hypothesis based directly on Torfeus's arguments. Anyway, 
all of Torfeus's histories came long after he'd been forced to leave Denmark, so we need to stop and dwell on the reasons why this happened in the first place. It wasn't necessarily so that his scholarship singled him out. Rather, Torfeus's unique personality seems to have caused a series of unfortunate events that led to some kind of conspiracy to push him out of the court. As we've already established, Torfeus was a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy, who loved to drink and carouse. But that's not the biggest blunder in the 17th century. He was a strong and handsome man, and that might have had more to do with it. His biographer would later note about his time at the palace that the girls at court were crazy about him, and that he himself was a hero in Venere, which is basically 18th century slang, meaning that he fucked like a god. One swallow does not make a summer, that much is true. This was the time of the libertines, and it seems unlikely that a fling or two would have caused too much of a stir. Sources about Torfeus certainly describe him as a man of vice, and when, in his old age, he wrote words of advice to young Icelandic men looking to make it in Copenhagen, he warns them with vague insinuations not to follow in his own footsteps and be seduced by corrupt society. It's not self-evident what this means, but certainly women whine and song in some sort of configuration. There are serious indications that Torfeus not only screwed his way through the royal court, but also weaponized his academic talents to this specific end. Some of his contemporaries, as well as his biographer, put a whole lot of emphasis on the embarrassing matter of him translating a very specific saga called Busa Saga og Herauds. For one thing, the saga is not historically relevant, nor very good, so we must assume that Torfeus translated it for the one remaining reason that makes the saga noteworthy in this context. You know that scene in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle takes his date to see a pornographic movie? Well, it's kinda like that. Busa Saga is the only Norse saga that is completely pornographic, or as his biographer notes, would have been best left forgotten. The fact that people familiar with his position at the Danish court pays this so much attention has spawned the theory that Torfeus translated Bosa Saga for the sole purpose of seducing his girlfriends with a bit of erotic boudoir reading, which I shall do for you right now, just to give you an idea of the contents. You might want to go somewhere private for this part of the podcast. Bosi was of good humor and flirted a bit, which she did in return. At evening time they were shown to their beds, and when the light was turned off, Bosi came to where the peasant girl lay and lifted her bedclothes from her. She asked who was there, and Bosi told her. What do you want? she said. I want to water my foal at your wine well, he said. Do you think it will be possible, my man? she said. It is not used to the sort of spring house that I have. Oh, I'll lead it there, he said and push it deep if it does not want to drink otherwise. Where is your foal, sweetheart? she said. Between my legs, my love, he replied. And you may touch him, but quietly, since he's very shy. She took hold of his staff and stroked it and said, It is a nimble foal, although rather straight at the neck. His head is not very well placed, he said, but his neck curves better when he's had something to drink. He now watered the foal rather generously, so that it dove in completely. The peasant girl was very startled at that, so that she could hardly speak. Aren't you going to drown the foal? she said. He shall have as much as he can take, he said, since he's often unruly when he's not able to drink when he wants to. He continued as long as he wanted, and then rested. 
The peasant girl wondered where the wetness had come from, which she had in her cleft, since the whole bed was in a lather under her. She said, Could it be that your foal has drunk more than is good for him, and has vomited more than he has drunk? Something is wrong with him, he said, since he is soft as a lung. He must be ale-sick, she said, like other drunkards. <laughs> that is certain, he said. They enjoyed themselves now as they wished, and the peasant girl was sometimes on top and sometimes underneath, and she said that she had never ridden such an easy-going foal as this one. So there you have it, folks. Torpheus was probably reading them the Norse equivalent of the lusty Argonian maid. The structure of Bosa Saga is built in such a way that the main plot almost feels like an excuse to give the hero the chance to bone some poor maiden wherever he goes, and the scene is more or less the same every time, except for the euphemisms. There's a bunch of corks and bungholes and hardened warriors spelunking in dank caves. So this could be one reason, among many potential others, why Torpheus was sent north, but I can definitely tell you one reason that did not have anything to do with it. Because at some point, a vicious rumor started spreading around that the actual cause for Torpheus's Norwegian migration was that he had murdered someone in a tavern. This rumor seems to have started after Torpheus's death sometime in the 1700s, but it's not true. There is no evidence whatsoever that Tormod Torpheus was a murderer. Yet. Was he the sort of man who might, in the heat of passion, punch some guy right in the kisser? I think the answer to that is yes, but there's really never any evidence to suggest that there was some kind of physical altercation that got him severed from the court. For now, let us simply assume that it was either his argumentative demeanor or his hedonistic, jovial tendencies, in which case wine and women were probably instrumental, or even some combination of all of the above, that was the chief cause. So for all we know, there could have been several personal conflicts that led to this. Torpheus was sent to Stavanger, where he got the thankless task of serving as a sort of inspector, poking around the matters of the tax collectors and officials who were already not too happy about the changes that Frederick III was bringing to Denmark-Norway, and so really came to hate this Icelandic asshole who was there to lubricate the deliberately sandy machinery of provincial bureaucracy. No doubt his familiarity with Old Norse law sharpened some of his legal sense, but ultimately Torpheus did not have a lot of power in his position, and seems to have basically been shooed over there to just be out of the way, and perhaps even deliberately to tease regional officials. During his travels up and down the western Norwegian coast, Torpheus used the opportunity to poke around at matters of a less official nature as well picking the brains of local peasants on subjects pertaining to the stuff of legends and ancient monuments and lore, which would become decent fodder for his future projects. It must also have been quite an experience for him to personally visit many of the sites described in the sagas, many of which he was personally responsible for bringing out into the light, even if, at this time, these were still rather obscure. Bergsvein paints quite a picture. Imagining his dark curls under a tricorn hat atop a horse, riding up to all manner of ancient mounds and stones, listening to the semi-mythical hearsay of the commoners, in between tense visits with officials, corrupt or otherwise. <clears throat> At some point, the path of Torface's fate would hit a fork yet again, when he met the double widow, Anna, Hans' daughter, Stangelan on Carme in 1664. The following year, the then 28-year-old Torfeus married Anna, who was 16 years his senior, and the marriage would last until her death 30 years later. 
Anna was a wealthy woman, and Trophaeus in return could help her manage her sizable estate. The two of them never had any kids. Now, it might seem like quite a turn for Trophaeus to settle down with a mature lady after years of kissing tavern wenches in Copenhagen, but for what it's worth, Trophaeus is rumored to have fathered bastard children all over Carme, so for all I know, he could be an old ancestor of mine. I feel like every girlfriend I ever had down there was a distant relative of some kind, so it's not completely far-fetched either. You'd also think that there would be some kind of bad blood between the king and Torfaeus, but at the end of the day, it seems that the conflict was not so much between the two of them as it was more a political decision within the court. The king clearly liked him well enough that when Torfaeus wrote him a letter asking for assistance with a long and bitter dispute with a neighbor, the king just pulled some strings and sent the guy packing for old time's sake. Kinda demonstrates my point that Torfaeus was not the sort of guy you wanted to have as your enemy. In spite of this, it should be said that Torfaeus otherwise was a man who tried to help the peasants of southwest Norway by opposing intense tax and rent hikes against them, proposing instead to cut the spending of the elite managerial class, which for the most part consisted of Danes. But that was, unsurprisingly, met with some resistance. Nevertheless, it's interesting that Torfaeus' arguments to benefit the Norwegian peasantry was based to some extent on his expertise of Norse medieval law. Then, after a few years of unhappy toil, Torfaeus finally managed to convince Copenhagen to release him from his position as provincial accountant and give him back his old job, and was actually given the position of royal antiquarian in 1667 after a completely insane project pitch where he promised to write the political history of Denmark, a complete etymological encyclopedia of the Danish language, and a compendium of historical sources besides all of the other shit that he was already working on with translations of laws and sagas and so on. <coughs> Would he be able to follow up on all of this? Probably not, but <laughs> that was also probably the point. To not run out of work anytime soon. But it's kind of a moot point because all of this came to an abrupt halt the day that His Royal Highness King Frederick III, in the year of our Lord, 1670, shuffled his mortal coil into God's golden ashtray and went whichever way his soul was destined. He was then followed by his son, King Christian V, who simply did not give a rat's ass about any of the historical topics that fascinated his dad, which meant that Torfaeus was now without a job and could freely return to Carme to tend to him and his wife's business, while also continuing to whittle away at his personal passion projects. One year later, Torfaeus found himself shipwrecked off the coast of Denmark, on the long way home after a trip to Iceland to settle his inheritance. After this initial wrecking, another winter storm forced him and his fellow travelers to stay at a tavern on the Isle of Samsø in the treacherous waters of Kattegat between Jutland and Zealand. The name Samsø may sound familiar, Samsø is where Odin is supposed to have practiced shameful magic according to the Eddic poem Lokasena, and in the Norse sagas, visits to Samsø, or Samsei as it's called in Old Norse, has often proven faithful to the heroes and champions that go there. This is where the legendary warriors Orvarod and Hjalmar defeated the champion Angantyr and his eleven berserker brothers, though Hjalmar, in the end, died laughing, according to himself, having been mortally wounded by the cursed sword Tyrving, which was imbued with a spell, forcing the sword to kill someone every time it was drawn from its scabbard. In an eerie way, Torfaeus's own visit to Samsø would send him on a parallel trajectory to many of the troubled anti-heroes that he himself knew from the sagas. 
Some possible awareness of this was demonstrated by Torfeus, as he would later insert in his translation of Frithjof's Saga Hins Frökna, or the Saga of Frithjof the Bold, a more detailed description of a shipwreck than the saga itself has to offer, having himself, of course, experienced one in real life. And here, Bergsven Birgisson also mentions a few other strange coincidences or even synchronicities, which sound ominous in retrospect, but I'm gonna do like Torfeus and say that you can make of it what you will. First of all, the incident was to take place in a tavern in a place called Stouns, which is etymologically the same name as the village of Stapnes, where Torfeus grew up. It recalls the prophecy from Orvar Odd's saga, where the protagonist, Odr, returns to his home at the end of the saga, where he is prophesied to meet his doom. Not a lot is clear about this incident, but witness testimony suggests that a love triangle had formed during the trip. Torfeus might have had an affair with a fellow passenger called Sissa, and she, as the journey progressed, had gone on to form a relationship with another passenger called Hans Holbeck. Hans, incidentally, also being the name of Torfeus's father-in-law back in Norway. We must assume the entire party was tired and on edge by the time they reached the tavern and began to drink, heavily. And we're not really sure what happened after. Everything had apparently seemed fine, then, at some point, Hans Holbeck began demanding that the others go to bed, presumably to be alone with his girlfriend. Torfeus eventually went to bed, taking a tankard of ale with him and a night pot for good measure, sharing his quarters with a tobacco smuggler called Torvi, which incidentally is the same name as his own father. After he had gone to sleep, another Icelander called Sigurdr broke into their chambers, slurring drunkenly in Icelandic. If I wanted to, I could kill the both of you. Torfeus was carrying a lot of money with him, having just sold the properties that he'd inherited in the old country, and might have assumed that Sigurdur was out to get it. But this might have also been just hot air, the words of a stressed out and drunk man. Sigurdur grabbed Torfeus and Torfeus fought him off, and charged out into the hall. This is where Sigurdur begins a bloody brawl with Hans Holbeck. And then when Tormod tried to leave, Sigurdur tried to block him, while Hans Holbeck was really out for Sigurdur and not Torfeus, who kept being pulled into the fight despite trying to de-escalate. But all of this turned around, when Tormod, at one point, found himself locked inside a room with Holbeck's girlfriend, which was when Hans Holbeck saw Red and broke in to attack Torfeus. Knives were drawn, and moments later, Hans Holbeck was bleeding out on the floor from a stab to the gut, having sunk to the ground like the old berserker Angantyr. Like the legendary sword Tyrving, the appearance of the executioner's sword tends to indicate that a life is about to end. Tormod Torfeus receives the death sentence. What comes now is the first chapter of a long and excruciating saga for Torfeus, where he spends a whole year at Samsø, waiting for his case to be evaluated and his plea to come through. But being such an industrious fellow, whose mind is always turned towards the past, Torfeus does spend his time researching local folklore and visiting ancient sites, dragging his guardian around on surveys that were to inspire and inform some of his later work. As you probably assumed, 
Torfeus was not fated to die by the executioner's sword. In April 1672, he receives a letter stating that his case qualifies for a second opinion. Among other things, it turns out that Hans Holbeck carried a piece of paper with some kind of magical charm in the pocket of his trousers, which, in the 17th century, obviously does not buy the dead man any favors. Ultimately, Torfeus is let off the hook with a decent fine and a public confession after about a year. Yet another year would pass in Copenhagen, where Torfeus did God knows what. He was probably making some kind of attempt at restoring his name, but the killing of Hans Holbeck would weigh him down for the rest of his life. He supposedly had one audience with King Christian at this time, where the king allegedly asked him why he was so murderous. Torfeus, on his end, apparently answered, quote, I have always been of the disposition to rather kill others than to let them kill me. When Tormod Torfeus, Tormod Torvason, returned to Carme in 1663, he'd been gone for two and a half years. Now he'd remained on Carme for quite a while, now completely dedicated to running his farm, spending a lot of time either taking neighbors to court or harassing officials and clergymen for not doing their job properly. It seems that Torfeus generally switched between his two modes, between being a very likable guy and a ball buster without compare. At some point, he even dug a body out of the church floor at Avalsnes so that him and his wife could get a better burial site. This sort of behavior was clearly in his blood via his own father. After all, Trophaeus had several Icelandic chieftains among his ancestors and was probably very proud of it. In spite of all of this behavior, all sources about him describe him as an exceedingly friendly man to those he liked. Locals remember him as a man who dressed well in buckled shoes in his tricorn hat and a saber at his hip. He was a renowned brewer, and according to the pioneering local historian Fritjof Övrebe, there once was a malt kiln on the farm of Stangeland that went by the name the Torfeus Kiln long after his death. Another indication that Torfeus was a very thirsty man is the fact that there is documentation that one of his tenants paid rent in gallons of hard liquor. We should assume that not all of his drinking was done smiling. Clearly the incident that Samsø and other failures in his life weighed heavy on him. The extremes of his personality may have grown more prominent with him being bogged down by depression and guilt. One source, written far after his death, alleges that Torfeus had a knife hanging in his house, which he would sometimes look at to remind him of his shame, which doesn't sound like the most healthy of coping mechanisms. In the first decade after his return to Norway, Torfeus doesn't do squat shit with any of his half-written antiquarian works. He just doesn't have it in him to continue. Instead, he used his legal expertise to sometimes act as a lawyer, providing legal services to the local peasantry and whatnot. In 1680, he took it upon himself to defend a woman called Tyri, Johanna's daughter, Littlasun, in the witchcraft trial against her. This is fairly late in the burning times and was actually one of the last witch trials in the country. But as you probably understand, a witchcraft trial, by nature, is not exactly an unbiased arena. The odds were heavily stacked against their favor. It didn't help that many local witnesses confirmed that Tyria's um, craft was not exactly a secret. Everybody knew that she was a folk healer, as her mother had been before her, and she was well respected for it too. It is interesting to dwell on the fact that while many people confirmed that Tyria was a practitioner, Nobody really wanted to see her dead, except, of course, for her accusers, who, as it turned out, had financial motivations for getting rid of her. I think this speaks volumes about the double standard surrounding sorcery in early modern society. 
When Torfeus entered the scene, he basically managed to pick the case apart piece by piece, and with the sympathetic testimony of locals, managed to save Thury from gruesome death. One of the things that might have really saved her neck is a detail in the Norwegian law of King Christian IV, which criminalized accusations without proof. There was simply no evidence that she had done anything malicious, and alleging that she had, just based on hearsay, was in itself a criminal offense. This remedied the guilt by association that they were trying to pin on Thury Litlason. Torfeus's successful defense of a witch has sometimes been cited as an example of a tendency in him to side with outsiders and the accused. And why shouldn't he have? He was himself an outsider, was he not? But if we follow Bergsvin Birgisson's argument that Torfeus also might have been accused of dabbling with sorcery as a schoolboy and almost ended up expelled for it, then this adds another dimension to the matter. Whatever the historical reality is, this would either way just be one expression of the greater tendency in Torfeus's life, namely that he always went his own way and often suffered for it. But the proof is in the pudding. Though obviously a troubled and tortured soul, and often kind of an asshole, Tormod Torfeus was an admirable and impressive man, both as a person and a scholar. Around the same time that he saves Thierry Litlason's life, he regains the spark first lit in his childhood and returns to antiquarian work. Once again he sits down at his desk, quill in hand, and pens a proposal to Copenhagen, offering to write the first complete history of Norway. And this turned out to be his fate. Not being expelled from school, not ending his life as a farmer, or a vilified tax collector, or even losing his head under the executioner's sword. He goes to Copenhagen in 1682, and returns as the royal historiographer of Norway. This is a time where there's a lot of inter-Scandinavian flexing going on, and there was some concern that if Denmark-Norway did not take charge of its own history, then it would all bubble away in Swedish megalogothicism, a valid concern, actually. In fact, Torfeus had received a letter from the Swedish king, inviting him to work in Uppsala. Which, of course, he declined. From the king of Denmark-Norway, Torfeus receives funding to purchase books. He gets access to the original manuscripts he needs, and brings them to Carme to be copied by assistant scribes, which he'll also require for his work. Some of the most important manuscripts of the Norse corpus was kept under lock and key at his estate, hidden in a special compartment that would protect them both from theft and fire. He was particularly afraid that they might get lost if a new war with Sweden broke out, where these would be a prized target in the event of a raid. Such a war did in fact break out, but never reached his part of the realm. The Great Northern War must have had some sort of impact on the final 19 years of Torfeus's life. Torfeus had in his possession several mega-precious saga manuscripts, as well as the extremely important legal Codex Krogos, and again the fucking Codex Regius which again is easily the single most important manuscript of Norse mythological texts. I don't think it's possible to express in words quite how big a deal this is. Of course, Christian V wasn't just interested in trying to protect uh, the Nordic past from Swedish abuse. As we've touched upon before, history was seen as a tool to extend royal authority into the past. As the absolute monarch of Denmark and Norway, any historical territories extending from either of them provided a model for what the Danish realm ought to look like in the future. 
If the Western Norse diaspora all the way to the New World had been settled first by Norwegians and then their immediate descendants, then these territorial holdings are justified for the Danish crown, and these movements around the North Atlantic provided a possible model for how to reinvigorate Danish trade, and who knows, perhaps even re-establish the Norse colonies themselves. Let's not forget that Torfeus was instrumental to pinpointing the Norse settlement to Terra Nova, that is, Newfoundland, as for any ulterior motivations on account of the crown. Trophaeus had to abide by this paradigm, whether he liked it or not, if he wanted to be published. And yet, it is obvious when you read his work that Trophaeus' true motivation is to give future historians a toolkit by which they themselves may try to separate fact from fiction. No scholar is completely neutral, and this also applies to Trophaeus. He wanted to restore Norway's honor as a respectable and sovereign entity with deep historical roots, which would, of course, reflect back on his native Iceland. Interestingly, he theorizes that the demise of particularly Icelandic chroniclers was due to a lack of free expression under Norwegian rule from the second half of the 13th century onwards, which ultimately resulted in the Norwegians losing touch with their own history. By mentioning this, it is possible that Torfeus is trying to critique his own times as well. In one sense, he is a skeptic, but his methodology is close to that of a medieval scribe, in that he doesn't think that unbelievable passages necessarily decrease the overall value of a given text. That is up to the reader to judge. Part of Trophaeus' metagame was to promote awareness about the fact that these texts existed at all, whether they were legendary or not. This sets him apart from the school of thought that was to come perhaps indicated by the attitudes of his 27 years younger friend and protege, Arne Magnusson, who thought that all supernatural and fantastic material had to be scuttled and not used as sources. Torfeus had a much more pragmatic approach. Not one to throw the baby out with the bathwater, Torfeus was of the opinion that legends might well hold some truth, disguised as fable. At some point in their correspondences, Arne Magnusson even suggests bonfires where they burn books written by what he deemed to be bad historians, which is kind of ironic given that Arne Magnusson's own collections would catch fire in 1728, in an event that is often considered uh, among the most traumatic incidents of the entire discipline. Torfeus, on the other hand, had no issue navigating such works when he disagreed with them. He just rants for a while about the stuff he disagrees with and moves on to the next subject. In response to Otney's reductionistic approach to everything he doesn't like, Thormod proposes that he writes a handbook where he explains in detail an exact methodology on how to determine the critical value of any given historical text, and to explain which criteria future scholars should abide by in order to separate fact from fiction. Quite a slight proposal on Torfeus's end, because nothing has fucking changed in the past 300 years. In Old Norse philology, and perhaps medieval studies more widely, we are still having these atomistic discussions to this very day. Torfeus's point, of course, is that he would much rather have access to a large body of sources that also include sources that aren't very good, than having to limit himself to a tiny corpus separated from everything else based on an arbitrary set of criteria. When Torfeus ultimately sends his first volume of Historia Rerum Norvegicarum to Arne for review, Arne basically says that the whole thing is a steaming pile of shit. For example, on account of Torfeus's long chapters on, say, whether or not trolls are real. There are other things as well, especially in the first volume, that uh, may defy our image about what a history book is supposed to contain. Specifically, his descriptions of the different regions, which acts more as a sort of cultural guidebook, providing diachronous exposition to the material that he's about to launch at us. 
But despite these disagreements, Trophaeus would go on to become a lauded historian. Some later historians go so far as to say that no other historian deserves mention because all of the others are taking their stuff from Trophaeus anyway. The surviving correspondences between Arne Magnusson and Thormod Trophaeus resulted in an extremely well-documented friendship overall. They critique each other's work and babble about all sorts of antiquarian subjects. They can be quite entertaining to read. Their diction is that of two Icelanders who have had their language completely bastardized to an extreme degree, both for the sake of their status in society, their education, and the fact that they lived abroad. But it also goes to show that modern Icelandic is much more conservative than it was back then. The letters often feel like one-third Latin, one-third Danish, and one-third Icelandic. In one letter, Torfeus apologizes in advance if his reply is a little bit uneven, as he's recovering from a three-day binge in conjunction with the baptism. Then, in another letter, Arni describes a strange coin that he's been gifted, which had apparently been used as a pendant sometime in Danish antiquity. We're left to presume that it was found in a burial or something. Because this was around the year 1700, Arni, of course, has no idea what the fuck it is. But I'm reading this in 2021, and it's immediately clear to me that he's talking about the direm from the Arab world, which are actually extremely common, insofar that anything is common in archaeology. It is both funny and humbling to look back at a time where this wasn't completely obvious, because we only really know about this uh, because we are at the tail end of generations of people poking around asking these questions. Besides churning out novel histories of the North Atlantic Norse diasporas, Trophaeus's little gnome workshop produced over a hundred handwritten paper copies of original medieval manuscripts, several of which were lost in the Copenhagen fire of 1728, meaning that Tormod and his personal scribe Ausgeir are the sole reason why we still have some of these texts. That's not counting any other manuscripts that he either personally owned or collected for the Royal Library, that ultimately became part of Arne Magnusson's famous collection. It's just all around fair to say that without Torfeus, we just wouldn't have the richness of sources that we have today. This was, as you could imagine, tremendously expensive in the 16 and 1700s. Suddenly, I don't feel as bad about my own reach when Bergsvein points out how few copies were actually printed of some of his works, especially the smaller histories that manifested as little side projects while he was working on his history of Norwegian things. For example, only 10 copies of his History of the Orkneys was sold in the British Isles, and I imagine not a lot more anywhere else. Though I'm sure that each and every copy ended up in a very interesting and loving home. Torface also struggled with the fact that the printers didn't have letter blocks for Norse letters, such as Edd and Thorn, and the printers simply didn't know what to do about it, so the first few books that he sent to the press came out full of mistakes. This was clearly a massive pain in the neck for Torfeus, who was now in his 70s, and in 1706, he saw the need to go to Denmark to run errands, shake people up, and demand money back from his printers. During this visit, it seems that Torfeus had a... we don't know, a stroke, maybe? Either way, he fell ill and lost much of his memory, prompting him to stay in Copenhagen for almost two years while he recuperated. Which, at this point, just sounds like every time Torfeus goes to Denmark. And, and despite this hurdle, with the help of his aides, he managed to finish four absolutely massive volumes of his history and publish it in 1711. And when I say massive, I'm talking not just about the number of pages, over 2,200 in total, but also the folio format. These volumes aren't bricks, they're fucking boulders, four times longer than the, at the time, authoritative history of France, apparently. He didn't get to hold the finished product in his own hands until maybe as late as 1718. Trophaeus died the following year, at the age of 83, 
and was laid to rest under the marble slab that I sometimes used to show visitors as a tour guide in St. Olaf's Church in Avalsnes. During the restoration of the church in the 1830s, his bones were dumped in an unmarked mass grave in the churchyard. His skull was apparently brought to the Bergen Museum, where I presume that it resides to this day. As for his Danish translation of the abominable Necronomicon by the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, I didn't think that there would be any harm in using it to revive the old master to converse about ancient matters and maybe exchange some cocktail recipes. But boy, let me just say, do not call up that which you cannot put down. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I hope this episode was as fun to listen to as it was to make. Most of the background music. Most of the background music was made by the very talented Helge Takstal, and of course, if you liked and if you liked Norjusium, you'll find a link to their bandcamp page in the show notes below, along with whatever else I deem relevant enough to put there. Brute Norse runs on listener support, so please share it with like-minded freaks. And if you absolutely want to, there is a Patreon page and a Teespring store where you can convert all those thoughts and prayers into cold hard cash to trick me into making more of the stuff that I'm already making. Now that I've already stolen an hour and a half from your life, I'm not going to take any more. So please have a good night and uh, catch you on the flip, I guess. You've been listening to the Brute Norris Podcast where we walk backwards into the future.